All right. Now we want to get started. Um, we are about to explore what would probably be considered arguably the second most important event in human history. Um, and, and so, you know, obviously we want to, uh, there's no way, no way possible for, for me and Scott to fully do that justice. Um, but I do want to um, just open up with a word of prayer, um, that, that uh, asking for the Spirit to kind of do His work through this time for us together tonight. Dear Father, um, it is true that what we're about to read and talk through is, is huge and, and vastly important. And one of those things that I wish we could have our eyes and hearts fixed on um, more often. And, and so I pray for that blessing that, um, that, you, would, that you would cause us to, um, to be able to reflect not just tonight, but through this week on the beauty of your son's sacrifice and, and um, what that means and what that does and that you would give us a bigger picture of it tonight. I, I really do believe that as with everything about you that, that um, we can keep diving deeper and deeper and never get to the bottom. And uh, Lord, so I pray that you would take us deeper tonight and stir up our heart and our affections for you through your word. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, we have for the last like month, we've been on Thursday night of the Passover of, of this Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life. Um, this evening is the first time that, w- that we actually finally kind of go to a new day, and, and that is we move to Friday morning from here on out. Um, so if you want to, you can make your way over to Mark 15. Um, while you're going there, I'm going to go to Mark 8 because um, Mark's gospel has been pushing us from Mark 8 on, okay, from, from this point where J- Peter, um, where Jesus asks, who, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. And then um, Jesus makes this statement about himself that he's going to suffer and die. Here's what it says in 8.31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Um, From that verse on, everything in Mark's gospel is moving us to that. And so Jesus will come back in chapter 9 and he'll make the same statement. Just in case his disciples and just in case Mark's readers missed it, um, he makes the same statement again. And then in Mark 10, just in case we missed it, he says it again and it gets a little bit more specific in some of the prophecy there. Um, Mark 10, 33 through 34 says this, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death, and deliver Him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock Him, and spit on Him, and flog Him, and kill Him. And after three days, He will rise. And so, everything in Mark's Gospel has been moving us towards this, and talking about how Jesus will suffer, and about how it's going to look like that for His disciples too, to serve and 
to suffer and been driving us towards this moment. We've already seen the first part of this prophecy fulfilled. That is that the Son of Man has been delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. Last week, um, Scott described this kind of mock trial that they had in the high priest's um, courtroom area there. Um, one that took place in the middle of the night, kind of in secret, um, to, to basically get a guilty conviction uh, or verdict on Jesus. And so now they have that. Now we're going to see the rest where He turns. The Son of Man is delivered over into the hands of the Gentiles. Kelsey, do you want to read for us tonight? Sure. All right. Kelsey, I'm going to have you just read chapter 15, verse 1. All right, so they deliver him over to Pilate, that is, deliver him over to the Gentiles. The reason they do this is because the Jews did not have the right to capital punishment. As an occupied territory with Rome in charge, they don't get to um, execute someone uh, for a crime. They don't have that right. That only belongs in Rome's hands and in the governor who is overseeing this area. And so for that reason, they're taking him to Pilate. Pilate usually lives up in Caesarea, okay, up north, but he always comes down to Jerusalem during the major feasts, during the major pilgrimage feasts like Passover, because people are much more likely to get um, zealous for Israel, a lot more political, and, and so it's good for the governor to be on hand so he can keep an eye on things unless they get crazy or get out of hand. Um, so he always travels down there then. So they just got to take him across town over to um, more than likely Herod's palace is where um, Pilate kind of resides at this time. Um, so the problem is Rome has to be the ones to execute him. But Rome's not going to execute Jesus for the things that the Sanhedrin just declared him guilty of, which is blasphemy. Um, Rome doesn't care about Jewish religious laws. Doesn't care if some dude thinks he's the Son of God or the Messiah, whatever that may be. And so they're going to need to bring a different um, verdict or a different charge or accusation to Pilate when they come, even though it's, it's somewhat in the same vein, but it's from a slightly more political angle to get Rome's attention. Mark doesn't mention um, what those charges are. It just says they accused him of many things. Luke says that they accused him. Uh, the, the two key things that would get the Rome's, uh, Romans' attention is um, of forbidding the people to pay taxes to Caesar, and the second is claiming to be the king. That is, the one who should be on Caesar's throne. And that will get Rome's attention. So this is what they bring to him. Read verses 2 through 5, Kelsey. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. So he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Um, that's not a term actually that any of the Jews used for, for this idea. They would say Messiah, they would say king of Israel, um, but the term that is going to get labeled on Jesus from here on out by the Romans, and that's going to be stuck on the little placard above his cross, is king of the Jews. Um, that's a kind of a Roman term that they would use, probably because they don't recognize the nation of Israel. 
Um, so king of Israel doesn't mean anything. Rome is the only kingdom that matters. Um, and so, so they call, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus gives them this kind of weird, enigmatic, uh, mysterious answer. After being so straightforward with the, the high priests and saying, yes, I am, and you're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in judgment. Um, with, with Pilate, he says, are you the king of the Jews? You say that I am, is what, um, is what Jesus says. And it, 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 it's probably something along the lines of whatever you say. Okay, So are you the king of the Jews? Whatever you say. Um, and, and it's weird that he's not quite as straightforward. Now in John we see that what, what Jesus is doing is actually, he, he recognizes that Pilate has a completely different understanding of king. And so he actually clarifies my kingdom is not like the kingdom that you have in mind. It's not one that is all about this earth. Um, if so, then my followers would fight for me, is what he says. And so probably Jesus isn't being as straightforward because Pilate's not going to get it fully. Jesus isn't going to defend himself because he knows what he's doing, and he knows what he needs to do, and that is go to the cross. Um, and he's not going to implicate himself either, though. He's not going to say something that Pilate might misunderstand and see as treason. Um, here's, here's kind of the interesting spot that Pilate is in. He's in a, a really tough predicament, and that is that he is consistently walking this political tightrope as he is overseeing the area of Palestine and Judea. The Jewish people were not an easy group of people to govern if you were a pagan ruler. Um, that is, they weren't like all the other um, they weren't like all the other groups in a pluralistic world that, that they lived in where, where Rome comes in and says, now you're going to worship our gods. The standard response from everybody is fine. We'll just add them to all of ours, right? And no big deal. Um, and, and Rome comes in and says, we're going to set up an image of Caesar. And they say, sweet, we got all kinds of images around here. No big deal. Um, the Jews are, first of all, because they are God's people, hate the idea of pagans ruling over them anyway. They are not going to allow Rome to try and push their gods on them, and they are definitely not going to do what was called imperial worship, where you were expected, if you were a territory of Rome, to offer incense to Caesar, to, to in a sense, worship Rome itself and the Caesar itself. They are not going to do that. They do not like anything that has an image on it, because that smells of idolatry to them, so you can't set up those things in their life, in, in fact, or yeah, in their place. In fact, Pilate learned that on like his very first day on the job. So when he first comes to Judea to be the governor, when he first comes to that area of Galilee and Judea, he, he on like the first night, he wants to take the Roman military standards, which are like these poles with flags on them. He wants to bring those into Jerusalem. Now, he knows that if he does that in the middle of the day, that people are going to freak out and make a big deal. But he thinks, maybe if I take them in while everybody's sleeping at night, then they'll wake up and they may be a little frustrated, but it's already there. What are they going to do about it? So that it'll you know, be a little bit of a stink, but no big deal. He could not be more wrong. Um, he has them sneak the standards into Jerusalem in the middle of the night, when they wake up, when the Jewish people wake up in the morning, they freak out. And they are not happy because they've got these images of Caesar on them. And that's, that's idolatry as far as they're concerned. And so a big group of them travel up from Jerusalem to Galilee. Josephus says that they wait there and they're kind of in um, pa, uh, the governor's kind of mansion or courtyard area for like five days. Um, demanding that he remove these things. On day five, he comes out and he meets with them. 
and, and he's not budging and they're not budging. And finally he gives the signal and all these guards surround all the Jewish people that are standing in there. And he says to them, if you do not allow those standards to stay in Jerusalem, if you're not going to back down on this, I'm going to kill you right here where you stand. And Josephus says that every one of the Jewish people in that room at that time, all at the same time, bowed forward and raised the shirts off their cloak as, as if to say, we're ready to die right here. And Pilate has to basically go, okay, and step back from that. <laughs> and, and, and basically, in that moment, has to pull all the standards out of Jerusalem because these people he, re- he recognizes mean business. And they're not going to play around with this stuff. And so he's, they're not easy for him to govern. Even on this day, John records that when they come to meet with Pilate, when they come to bring Jesus to him, they won't go into his headquarters because they don't want to get dirty. They don't want to become unclean by going into a Gentile house. That would mean that they couldn't eat the Passover. So they make him walk outside to come and meet with him. So needless to say, like... Pilate does not like these people very much. He is ticked at them because they're so difficult, because they might start a riot at any time, because they won't do the things that all the other people will allow Pilate or the other governors to do, because they treat him as lesser than them with these things like this, and so he is frustrated with them. Now, the good news for Pilate is that he has absolute authority and rule, and he can do whatever he wants. The bad news is that Caesar will not stand for any sort of rioting, or unrest in any region of his empire. And so if things get crazy in Judea, he can have Pilate removed like that. And he does in AD 36, just a few years after this, because Pilate can't control them anymore. So Pilate is always in the middle. Sometimes he just outright slaughters people. Like one time they were all protesting because he was using money from the temple to build an aqueduct in Jerusalem. You don't use money from the temple, especially if you're a Gentile. Okay, so they're all protesting and they're gathered around in this big crowd. Pilate has all his Roman soldiers secretly go, like without their uniforms, out amongst the crowd and act like they're protesters with them. And then he gives the signal and they all pull out swords and they just start slaughtering the whole crowd. So Pilate doesn't mind doing that stuff. But he knows he, can't, he can only do so much before he could lose his own job, before the people could turn and riot. And he's in this spot now. It's Passover, and the people are already political. They're already nationalistic. They're already passionate. And they bring him this guy that the leaders, the Jewish leaders, want dead. They want him out of the place. And as Pilate looks, he does not see anything that he can actually convict this guy of. Anything that he's done that would make him guilty, and yet he's in kind of a rock and a hard place on this weekend, knowing that he has to kind of appease the people. That is Pilate's situation. You don't have to feel too bad for him. He's a pretty bad dude, and and he's really only working to save his own skin here. It's not that. There are some church traditions that actually have Pilate um, like they, they view him as a saint, actually, like someone they pray to in the Coptic church and stuff like that. They, they hold him in such high regard because he kind of fights for Jesus' innocence, but, but he doesn't really fight too much, not if it's going to cost him anything, and he's not a great dude. So read verses 6 through 11 for us, Kelsey. There was a man called Barabbas, and the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them, and he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? 
for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Alright, so Mark records that there's this tradition where at the feast, Pilate would let go of one prisoner, probably usually a political prisoner. And this is probably part of that whole thing of trying to maintain the peace and be on good terms with the Jewish leaders. And so he has these different people who are in there. Evidently there was a kind of insurrection rebellion that had popped up recently, which was not uncommon. Little mini rebellions were popping up. Um, around Palestine somewhat frequently. And aside from that, you had people who got so um, fed up with the system and fed up with the rich, um, the rich rulers, even the rich Jews who were kind of together with the Romans, that they would kind of break off and form their own little sort of Robin Hood groups um, that attacked rich people and attacked um, Gentiles and Roman people and kind of started their own group. Barabbas is one of these people. He's, he's probably a leader of a group who started a rebellion of some kind and it was one that got violent and killed some people. Um, and so um, because he's one of these, I, I always kind of took it to be crazy that they would choose this robber as he's often described or this murderer over Jesus. But the truth is it would not be that hard of a sell. You've got a guy who's fighting for the rights of the people, a guy who's willing to kill for Israel or for the poor, and, and that stacks up fairly well against this Jesus guy who, who doesn't seem to be the Messiah that we thought he was going to be, fighting for us like we wanted him to do. And so it's not that crazy to pick um, Barabbas in this, situa- uh, in this situation. And so he says to them, so then what do you want me to do with the king of the Jews? That is, by the way, a slap in the face because none of them are calling him the king of the Jews. Pilate's the only one who keeps calling him that just as a way of kind of sticking it to him. Um, so he's saying this to them, but he is caving to the crowds as they call for him. We want him crucified. We want him crucified. So what Pilate does, and this was somewhat standard before a person got crucified, is he had him scorched or he had him flogged. And this would have been a really, really um, brutal prep for crucifixion. It was a brutal practice that often actually ended up killing the person before they were even made it to the cross. Um, what would happen is the victim would be stripped and then strapped across something with his hands tied above his head so that the back would be stretched out. Um, and then soldiers on either side, one on each side, a left-handed one and a right-handed one, would take turns with this thing that we call the cat of nine tails or the scorpion, some called it, the flagellum. Um, this, this stick with uh, multiple leather straps on it. At the end of each strap is either bone like sheep's knuckles, lead, or glass. And the idea is to not just beat, but to actually that these things would grab a hold of the flesh as they would hit the victim on the back, tearing them apart. Josephus says it was possible actually sometimes to see the victim's bones by the time they were done with them. And, and the Jews had a rule, 40 lashes minus one. You could only beat a person 40 times, and so they made it a rule that you just do it 39 times just in case you lose count. That way you don't go over. The Romans didn't have any rules. 
They just beat you as long as they wanted to. They just whipped you until they were tired. And so that's what they do with Jesus. And they begin to um, whip him and beat him there. Read it, uh, verses 16 through 20, Kelsey. So he hands him over to the soldiers, and and the soldiers probably have some mix of boredom um, and frustration dealing in this crazy part of the world, and and honestly just outright like wickedness and evilness, and then that they decide that they want to just have fun with this guy for a little bit, and so they take him. And they clothe him in a purple robe, probably a faded red cape that like a, a military general or captain would wear of some kind. And so they put that on him in a crown of thorns. They put a reed in his hand, Matthew says. These are actually, this is like the exact mimicry of what was called a Roman triumph or a Roman triumphal. And that is when a Caesar or when a commander came back from victory, um, like a military victory, he would have a scepter in his hand and, a, and a, a wreath on his head and a cape on him, a royal robe, and they would all bow down to him. And that's what they're doing to Jesus right now, only they're also beating him and they're spitting on him exactly as Jesus said would take place in Mark 10. Um, and so this is, um, this is what they do. And then he says that they begin to lead him off to death. To, to lead him along the way, and it was common for a person to be paraded through the streets on their way to death, kind of as an example um, for the people who would have been there. Read verses 21 and 23, Kelsey. Then they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the soul. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Alright. Verse 21 is really, really interesting. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Um, it's interesting because of the way Mark describes these guys. Um, Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is a town in northern Africa, but it was known to have a really high Jewish population. And Simon is a Jewish name. That's Peter's name, right? And so, more than likely, this is a Jew who lives, though, amongst this Jewish population in, in Cyrene. He's there because it's a pilgrimage feast. That's what the Jewish males do. They travel there, and he's in town, and, and he's making his way into town as they come across Jesus. Now, the common practice was, again, for the victim to carry the, the cross, actually, it would have just been the cross beam. It's not like the pictures you see or the movies where he's got the big cross over his shoulder. No, the, the, the actual beam that goes vertical would have probably already been planted there. 
in, in Golgotha, in the hill. They just carried what was, I think, called the patibulum, um, the cross beam across their shoulders. Um, and it was the practice for that person to carry it. Jesus is more than likely weakened by the um, close-to-death beating he's just received and in the fact that he was beat amongst the soldiers. A battalion, it said, was there, which is about 600. I don't know if that's how many soldiers were there at the time. Um, but from the beating. And so they see this guy, Simon. But Mark does something that he doesn't do anywhere else. He barely names anybody in his things, but he names him. And then he says, and this is the father of Alexander and Rufus. What that tells us is that the church that he's writing to knows these guys, knows Alexander and Rufus. Um, Most people think actually that Mark writes to Rome, and it's really interesting. When Paul writes his letter to Rome, he says, say hi to Rufus in the 16th chapter. Um, we don't know if it's the same guy or not, but really kind of interesting idea. I, I love this. I, to, to me, this really does increase the credibility of a letter like this. These aren't the kind of little random worthless details that you put into just a list of um, myths or exaggerated stories. These are actual people that Mark says, hey, by the way, you could go ask Rufus whether this happened or not. Like it was his dad. You go ask Alexander these things, and, and I, I love that. I think that that's um, really cool. Uh, go ahead and read verses 24 through 26, Kelsey. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. All right. He says here that they cast lots for his clothing. That's, it's a really insignificant detail and a really common practice, actually, that when a victim was killed, that the soldiers would divide up his possessions among themselves. It was just common. So it's almost worthless for Mark to point out, except for that I believe Mark is pointing us to one of the most profound prophecies in the Old Testament, which is that of Psalm 22, one of the most direct ones. And they are all kinds of references as you read through Psalm 22 that match up with things that Mark says and things that the other gospel writers say about how Jesus' crucifixion took place. I just want to read three verses from you. Psalm 22, verses 16 to 18. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Um, a prophecy written by David, um, and this, this amazing line, they pierced my hands and feet, written 1,000 years before Jesus, written 500 years before the practice of crucifixion had even been invented, um, did not even exist um, for another five centuries, and yet David writes about this, having your, your hands and feet pierced, probably not even knowing what he's describing. I'm sure having no clue what he's describing, but in that moment he is prophesying about the incredible gruesome death that Jesus is going to go through. Um, it is kind of strange. The Gospels don't go into a lot of detail. Literally, Mark uses three words. They crucified him. Like it doesn't go into a lot of detail about what crucifixion is, mostly probably because his readers knew about it. But also I think maybe because they're not quite as caught up in the physical nature of the crucifixion, the, the physical details. We do know that it was rough. We do know that it was incredibly rough. The Roman politician Cicero called crucifixion the cruelest and most hideous punishment possible. 
the Jewish historian Josephus, who we've quoted several times, said it was the most miserable of deaths. The idea of crucifixion is it is designed to maximize both pain and humiliation on the part of the victim. Victims were almost always crucified on the side of a major road just outside the town as a weapon of terror, as a means of striking fear into the heart of anybody who passed by to say, this is what happens when you mess with Rome. And so anybody walking by, it would have been so awful, so brutal, um, that, that they would not want to have anything to do with it. Again, the Gospels don't give us a whole lot of details on that, though. It's kind of interesting. Read verses 27 through 32. And when they crucified him, two robbers... Uh, when they, sorry. And, when him they and with him they crucified two robbers... <laughs> one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So Mark ends with saying that not only is Jesus suffering, but he ends, um, the, ends this little section, at least, with the mockery of three different groups. First of all, the crowds who pass by. Um, second of all, the chief priests, the leaders, the scribes. And then third is the, actually the two men being crucified on either side of him. Probably, more than likely, Barabbas' companions. Um, part of that insurrection as well, and Jesus is crucified in the place where Barabbas was supposed to be. Um, but all three of these people began to mock him. This is another Psalm 22 statement. Mark actually uses the words, I think it's Psalm 22 verse 8 that says, All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads, which is exactly what Mark says about this statement here. Verse 32, though, is the one that really caught my attention I was, as I was reading this week. It says this, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. That's what the Jewish leaders said. Let this Messiah come down that we may see and believe. In other words, if he would come down, that would prove to us that he's the Messiah. If he really is the Messiah, prove it by saving yourself and getting off the cross. What's so fascinating about that is Mark has used the whole second half of his gospel to say that actually he proves he's the Messiah by not getting down. That he proves he's the Messiah by staying on there and suffering. And even their statement, he saved others but he cannot save himself, is more true than they know. Because if he saves himself, then he cannot save others. And so this idea of Jesus' great suffering um, being, according to Mark, remember, Jesus is the Messiah, the first half, and the second half of the gospel, the, the Messiah must suffer and this is exactly what mark is getting at that it's on his, it's it's in his staying on the cross that he proves himself to be the messiah in his great suffering one of the greatest attacks um strongest honestly arguments against christianity and religion in general is this idea of suffering in the world if god existed why is there so much suffering in the world 
How could a good God allow so much suffering to exist? Where is God when the Holocaust takes place? Where is God when little kids get abused? Where is God when, when the innocent are killed or murdered or convicted or whatever else? This idea of suffering in the world being one of the strongest arguments towards him. But, but the cross gets really, really interesting because the cross tells us at least two really important things. And one is this, that God often uses the suffering for the greater good. And that is, most of the time when bad things take place in our life, most of the time when there's suffering that is in the world, it seems inexplicable to us. And we cannot quite get our minds around why it took place. Every now and then, the veil gets pulled back and we get a glimpse that God sees. And one of those places is here at the cross. And it's in the cross that we actually see had God stepped in and stopped the suffering, it would have been worse for the world. It would have been worse for all of creation. It would have been the worst thing that could have happened. And could it be possible that in your own suffering, or in the suffering of loved ones, that God might be doing something greater and better than He would have had He allowed them to get away from that suffering? Had He allowed that to pass? That, that, that God works in those things. The second thing that the cross tells us, and I love this, when asked, where is God in suffering? Christianity is the only religion that has a good answer. And that is, He's right there on the cross. Um, most people who try to defend God in this, like we spend our time as Christians or Muslims do or Jews do, trying to get God off the hook. For suffering. Well, it's not his fault. Well, he didn't know that. Well, he wouldn't really want that. And I believe a lot of that is all true. What's kind of fascinating, and Tim Keller says this, is the Christian God is the only one who puts himself back on the hook. Christian God is the only one that goes down and says, I'm in this with you. Like, I suffer just like you. I'm not above it and, and not completely immune to it. I allow myself to go through that as well. I am right there in the middle of suffering just like everybody else. And that is something that no other religion can claim about their God, something that no one else could fathom that God would go through these things. And, and, and I don't know exactly why he allows suffering all the time in our life. I don't know why wars and why famines and why holocausts take place. I do know this, that God does not remove himself from it. I mean, instead, we see in Jesus him placing himself right in the middle of it. This does lead to one other question, probably multiple questions. Here's a big one, though. Why? And specifically, why does God put His Son in it? There are theologians who hate this idea of God allowing, not just allowing, causing Jesus to die because of sins. The word that's been coined in the last 10, 15 years is cosmic or divine child abuse. That to take care of our sins, God takes it out on His Son beats him, abuses him, kills him. Why would God do that, and, and how does that work? Scott is going to talk about that in just a couple minutes. So take a break, and then uh, we'll come back together to go through those. Okay. Hey, listen up. It's going to be loud. There we go. Um, I'm going to do my thing up here, if that's okay. So, I have...
the privilege of um, having my kids in a church that is that has has them involved in activities. I mean, all kinds of things. This coming weekend, my my two girls and my wife actually are getting away for this junior high girls retreat. I love that they get to do that. Um, there's camps every summer. I don't know how much money we spend on the activities that our kids are involved at church, and I love it. I love that they get to go and do these things. I love that they get to go to camp and service opportunities. Um, but I remember camp and some, I remember youth events and I remember certain things and um, whenever they talked about the cross, whenever they talked about crucifixion, there was always uh, an, an emotive element to it. So some of you, many of you have probably been to church camp growing up and you know the last night of church camp is the, is the big night. Okay, we got to get them to make a decision before they leave. Um, and and I, I really believe that the, the intentions most of the time are, are good for, by these youth pastors, but inevitably there's the speaker and that, you know, the big night is the last night and we've got to get, we've got to really pull on the heartstrings to, to get them to connect with this, to make a decision before they go home. And I, again, I believe most of that is all good. I, I think you've probably heard similar things. Maybe they show a clip of Jesus um, in, in, in the, the nails being driven into his hands. And maybe you've heard the message that, um, you know, every time you sin, every time you disobey your parents, every time you look at porn, every time you cheat on a test or say a lie, that's like, that's like just driving the nails into Jesus' hands, right? And, and, and you know, I, again, I, I believe the, the heart is to try and connect them to what Jesus did on the cross to help them see, wow, Jesus paid for my sin. But I think oftentimes, I have have issues with that. Three, specifically. One is, it's somewhat emotionally manipulative, but some of that's okay. You know, I think, you know, everyone, you you can't watch TV without being manipulated emotionally. You can't watch, if those of you who are in Stratcom, that's like your, that's like your job. Is to manipulate people's emotions. Yes, and, and you know what? It's fine. It's fine. You know, hey, whatever. Use it for the glory of God somehow. Um, but so the church, the church is not the only ones that do this. So whatever. Um, and often, oftentimes there isn't. There is a natural and normal emotive response. The second issue I have is, um, what was the second issue? <laughs> I know the third one. That's the one I want to talk about. I don't like this. The second issue I have an issue with, just so you know. It'll come to me later. The third one is, it's coming. The third one is, essentially, it's bad theology. Um, well, I know, I, know, I know the second issue. The second issue, it's, it's when, you, when you get an emotional response to make a decision, I'm not sure, oftentimes, unless there's follow-up, unless there's a lot of, you know, stuff behind that, it's, it's, who knows what good it actually does. But, because you and I know that that doesn't always work. This, this, this is the second issue. It's coming back to me. So, like, you, you know, this idea that Jesus went through something terrible for me, so I should not do bad things, is kind of like the takeaway. Jesus went through something really bad 
so that I should be so I should be good because when I'm bad it's like I did that to him. So I should be good because he went through something bad. And that's and leads me to the third issue which is that that is not the way the gospels talk about the cross. That's not the way the Bible talks about the cross. That is such a that is there is some truth to that but it is it is shallow and disconnected from the larger story of God. And actually Drew already brought some of this up. Like, this goes back a thousand years. Like, the, there's a deeper connection. There's something bigger going on here. And like what Drew said, this is, these three days are the greatest um, three days in human history. Like, these are the, the, culmina- the culmination of all that God's been doing and telling to lead to this point in order to do this, to redeem and restore the world back to Him for His glory and, and His purposes and our joy and so you have this when we when we dumb it down and sh- make it shallow this emotive you when you sin you're like just might as well take another nail and stick it to Jesus um, that is not it doesn't work first of all and that is not the way the Bible talks about it and so I want to I want to talk about some things that um, as the Bible describes the, the, the crucifixion, it brings up these major themes in the Bible like forgiveness and atonement and grace and righteousness. And these are major themes throughout the Scriptures. And I'm really forever indebted, I didn't bring it up here, but this book by a guy named Andrew Wilson, some of our leaders led, read it last semester, was it? Or, le- or year? Was it last semester? Okay. Um, this book called God Stories by Andrew Wilson. If you need a summer read, this is a summer read because this book does a great job of walking through these stories in the Bible and, and, and kind of from the beginning all the way to the end and then at periodically stopping at a story and going, see how this story helps us see the bigger story? So that you now begin to go, oh, that's why the Tower of Babel. Oh, that's why Abraham was such a big deal. Oh, that's why Psalm 22 is and Isaiah 53 is. And, and so uh, he does a great job. And so a lot of what I'm describing, the way I'm talking about it, comes from his ideas, and so, you know, give him the credit. Um, But the first thing I want to talk about is what Drew ended with, um, was this idea of, did Jesus really suffer the penalty for sin? Did he suffer a penalty for sin? Did Jesus really die in our place, and was God responsible for all of that? Okay, and so, throughout church history, throughout the, the belief and understanding of, of Scripture and, and doctrine and orthodoxy, the answer to those questions is yes and yes and yes. The Bible seems to talk about that. And fortunately, Isaiah 53 nails it for us. And so, if you want to turn there, Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 6, is where we're going to be. Um, and I have it on the screen, too. Isaiah 53, we've talked about it a couple weeks ago. It's a big, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22 are huge whenever you're talking about and dealing with the crucifixion. Um, Isaiah was written in around 600 B.C., which would have been, I guess, 100 to 200 years before crucifixion was invented, somewhere around there. Um, So it's interesting that the things that are talked about are 600 years before Jesus lives them out. Um, But here's what it says. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
All we, like sheep, have gone astray, have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So I want you to notice these words. Um, Pierced and crushed and chastised and wounds and laid on him the iniquity. And so this is the word, this is the theological um, idea behind what's happening. It's this word, I hope this works. Penal. Okay? Uh, and then I want you to notice another word, or uh, these other words. It says, our transgressions, our iniquities, our, uh, uh, yeah, it brought us peace, and we are healed. So then this other word, Substitution. Penal substitution. So, this word is dealing with the penalty, right? Just um, paying the penalty, suffering the penalty, penal, and then substitution is dying in our place. And, and this is kind of the orthodox understanding of what Jesus is doing on the cross. He, he's, he's suffering our penalty and He's dying in our place. And so, the, the longer term is penal substitutionary atonement. It, it is this idea, this is the way God atoned for our, this way Jesus atoned for our sins by suffering the penalty and dying in our place. And Isaiah spells it out for us. Now the question, the next question is, um, did God really, is, is He really responsible for this? And, and then we go to the next couple verses down, verses 10 through 12, 10 through 11. Actually it says, Yet it was the, the will of the Lord to crush him. He was to put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. And so it is the will of the Lord to crush him. Now, you could say, okay, well, that's, that's Isaiah. That is, um, that's 600 years before. Maybe he's talking about something else. Well, it's not just an Old Testament idea that God would be willing, that God would, would want this to happen. Um, two things. One, Jesus, a couple weeks ago we said, we talked about Jesus' prayer in the garden, and he says, Lord, if it your will, let this cup pass, before, pass by. Right? What's he talking about there? Yeah, the cup in... in this cup, meaning the pouring out of wrath, was kind of how it was understood and how it was used. So he's saying, if it's your will, let this cup that's about to be poured out on me, let it pass. But then he says, not my will, but yours be done. And so in that moment, in, in his humanity, and I don't know how this works, but in his humanity, we get a glimpse of Jesus saying, I don't want this to happen, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to go through what I'm about to go through, but not my will, your will. In other words, I know you want this, so I'm, I'm going to do it. So we have that as, as pretty decent evidence from the lips of Jesus. The second is this other big word. If you can't read it from the back, it's propitiation. It's this word propitiation, P-R-O-P-I-T-I-A-T-I-O-N. And it is a, a New Testament word, and it, and it literally means to turn away, 
um, the, the turning away or the absorbing of wrath by an offering, essentially. Propitiation. It's a big word. It's a great word. And here's, here's uh, three different sections where it's, where it's mentioned. Romans 3, 23 through 25. It says, for all, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to, to be received by faith. Here is another one, actually another two more. 1 John 2, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then 4.10, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So it's been believed throughout church history that, that this idea, this, this word, is, is the idea that Jesus took on, He absorbed the wrath of God that we deserved. He, 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 by His death on the cross, it turned away God's wrath from us. Now, about a hundred years ago, someone came along and said, I don't, I don't like this idea. I don't like this idea that God would pour out His wrath, that God had wrath poured out on Jesus for our, for our behalf. And so they tried to change this idea to expiation instead. Um, but, it, but, but traditionally and, and orthodoxically, this has always been the case. This understanding that Jesus, is, that Jesus absorbed our, the wrath of God. So, Jesus dying on the cross doesn't buy us back from Satan. It buys us back essentially from the wrath of God. Later on in, in Romans 3, it says that He did this to prove He did this because He's just and the justifier. He's just, he must punish sin, but he's also the justifier, and he's the one that absorbs it, and the absorbs the punishment in order to justify us. I mean, this, these are big ideas. You see why just connecting it to, well, yeah, every time you sin, it's like, you know, nailing Jesus on the cross. You should feel really bad about your sin so that you stop sinning. It's just dumb. It doesn't work, first of all, and it's not, it's not, it's not the idea. Um, there's bigger things happening. So, th- th- this is a big idea, and it, and it can be complicated, but it's, it's, it, it's consistent throughout Scriptures. And so I want to point to one more, one more thing. In Leviticus 16, is this, I, we're not going to turn there, because, and we're not going to read from it, because there's too many verses to try to explain how, you're just going to have to read it later. But essentially it's this. Uh, Leviticus 16 is where God sets up the Day of Atonement. It's this once a year day, where all the, all the Israelites would come together and the high priest would go um, into the Holy of Holies after he's cleansed himself of sin by killing an animal, sacrificing an animal for his own sin, putting on these specific garments, cleansing the Holy of Holies. I mean, there was all kinds of rituals and ceremony and, and, and things that had to be done for him to be able to go into this Holy, Holy of Holies, which is where God dwelled in the tabernacle. And... It was only once a year, and he would go in to pay for the sins of the people. Now, there were sacrifices happening throughout all the year. for things. If they did this, they had to sacrifice this. If they did this, they had to sacrifice There's all kinds of this. But once a year, as a, as a way of cleaning the slate, as a way of God saying, in order for me to stay in a relationship with you, we've got, it. We've got, to, co- we've got to do a day of atonement where we just cover the sin. And so, 
Here's, what, here's how God wanted it to happen. After the priest paid for his own sacrifice to, to cleanse from his own sin, God said, grab two goats. The first goat, God says, that's for me. That one we're going to kill. We're going to sacrifice and we're going to use it to cleanse the people of their sin. And so they would, I mean, he would sprinkle in the Holy of Holies, he would, he would sprinkle in the Tent of Meeting, he would sprinkle on the altar, and this was, this was, this goat, this poor goat, they would cast lots to figure out which one was the first one and which one was the second one, and the first one was the one that belonged to Yahweh. And that was the one that was sacrificed. The second one was called the scapegoat. Now, have you heard this term? Scapegoat, probably outside the Bible. Um, but this is where it came from, actually. And so you have this, you have this scapegoat. And the scapegoat, the, whole, the, the high priest would lay his hands on the scapegoat, would, um, would announce, pronounce all the sins of the people on this goat. And then someone was designated to take the goat outside the camp, outside the, the walls, and set it free. And so the, the two goats represent two things that God's doing to, to, to help us understand forgiveness. First is for him, he says, their, their sin must be cleansed. For me to be in a relationship with them, their sin must be cleansed. The second thing is, um, their guilt must and their shame must be removed. And so it was, it was, forgiveness was this idea of cleansing of the sin and, and removing of the shame. And so the people would know, okay, God has forgiven our sins, but God has also removed our shame. It's, it's sent outside the camp, and it's gone. Now, this is where we come back to Jesus. Jesus is both the sin offering and the scapegoat. He's both the sin offering and the scapegoat. Um, Jesus is the sin offering and takes the punishment the punishing sacrifice for our sins, cleansing our sin. And this is where in Romans 8, 1 it says that there is no condemnation um, now for those who are in Christ. So we're not, our sin doesn't condemn us because God has cleansed us because of Christ's sacrifice for us. But he's also the scapegoat. Listen to what Andrew Wilson says. He says, One innocent animal effectively, effectively became sin for the people and left camp to signify the complete removal of all shame. This is how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin who knew no sin. Jesus, here's the other thing, Jesus is sacrificed outside the camp. Right outside the temple, outside the city walls in Jerusalem, on this hill of the skull. And he's removed from, and his sacrifice is, 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 is for our guilt and shame to be removed as well. And so you have Jesus right here being the fulfillment of our sacrificial, sacrificial, um, uh, sacrificial lamb and scapegoat at the same time. Now, this is, this is cool. I, I, um, I didn't know this was actually here, um, but Hebrews talks about this idea of the scapegoat. In Hebrews 13, 11, it says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy, holy place by the priest and as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. What he's talking about is um, oftentimes 
the, the animals were drained of their blood and their blood was actually what was used as sacrifice. But the rest of the carcass, if you will, or the body, they were taken outside the camp to burn. It's a similar idea. It was removed from the people's presence. It was a similar idea to the scapegoat. He says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his, through his own blood. Jesus is both the sin offering and the scapegoat. Now, back to, back to our emotion. Um, do you ever find it difficult to connect to the emotion of what Jesus has done? Um, like, when you hear this idea that Jesus is your scapegoat, does that, does that move you? Or do you go, oh, wow, that's cool. Shouldn't it move us? I mean, shouldn't there be some sort of emotive response? I, think, I don't think you can f- hear about the crucifixion and, and, and understand what Jesus went through without some sort of recognition of like, wow, wow, right? And so to say that we shouldn't have any emotion in this is, is not true. And, and yet this, this character in this story in Mark is fascinating to me. And, uh, and it doesn't seem like he has any sort of connection. You know, we don't know much about him. This, this guy, Barabbas, we don't know much about who he is. Um, but there's something that tells me we're a lot like him. A lot more like him than we probably realize. And, uh, and so I, you, maybe some of you have heard of this video or seen this video by Judah Smith. Um, he talks about Barabbas. And I've never really... He paints him in a picture I'd never really seen before. And so I'd like to, I'd like to show it. And then afterwards, we're going to spend some time in worship. I hope this works. So we might want to check the volume to see if, if it's all the way up. You ready? a rebel, and why he's even mentioned, sometimes I'm not so sure, it's like, what, what's, this is about Jesus, so we got wrong. First is Barabbas, the thug and rebel. He says, all right, who do you want? This is blasphemy, this is, this has gone too far. There's no comparison. This is a rightful prisoner, a man who should be on death row. He's a rebel against Rome. He leads a rebellion. He murders people. He's a bad man. He's a thug and he's a crook. He deserves the chains and he deserves the crucifixion. Jesus, what has he done but heal, restore, deliver, set free, open blind eyes, open deaf ears, heal the lame and the leper? What what has Jesus done? Who do you want? Barabbas. Yeah. Give us Barabbas. People say, give us Barabbas. The Roman soldiers come up and 
is Jesus God is. But all I know is my people love you. There seems to be no conscience of Barabbas. There's no record of him turning Jesus. I owe you everything now. Or you have set me free now. Silent for he knew the will of the Father. He said, It's fine, Father. Let him have Barabbas. But Jesus knew that the Father would have to treat Jesus like Barabbas so he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. Barabbas thought it was the people that set him free. No, 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 no. It was the love of the Heavenly Father. But God, what if I do it again? 
God, I don't want to hurt you. I love you. I, I don't want to do this anymore. Give me sins. This is all we got. It's all I got. It's all you got. We can play games. We can play church games. We can pretend like some people are better than others and that's why they're blessed. But we can all come to the honest conclusion that it's God. And it's God alone. The greatest challenge is not your discipline, your devotion, your focus. Your greatest challenge is believing the gospel. Could it be that there's a God with a love so scandalous, so wide, so deep, so vast, so high, so expansive, so welcoming, so inclusive? Let me have your sin, son. Okay. And I give him my sin. Stand in this empty space of forgiveness and acceptance while Jesus walks off to the cross that I deserve. I see him, I see him walking to the post to be whipped. As I stand a free man, all the attention is turned now. And I feel the love of God saying, Go, son, live your life. I'll pay the price. When we get off, thinking that we were gonna set ourselves free. It's still Jesus. It'll always be Jesus. It'll never stop being the power of Jesus. If His blood is sufficient for your salvation, His blood is sufficient to sustain you through every challenge and every sin and every temptation. Jesus is enough! So wrongly placed and wrongly understood and motivated emotion um, probably isn't super helpful. But when we understand the truth of Jesus and the, and the truth of the, this greater story that God is telling and the culmination of that story in the gospel of Jesus and, and specifically in the crucifixion and the resurrection of what Jesus has done, it really should motivate us. It really should um, produce this response that says, okay, I'm not going to try and, and do this myself anymore. I'm going I'm to finally trust the gospel. I'm going to trust that Jesus is enough. And so this is an opportunity um, to that, tonight in this old house with 70 people um, for you to just have some time for you to just connect with what Jesus has done for you to thank God for um, the cross and, and for His goodness to you. And so here, we're going to spend just a couple minutes in reflection and then um, they're going to come up and lead us in, in some worship. And, and really, I want this time for you to just feel free. If you want to sit there and sing, great. If you want to stand, sing, great. If you want to... And don't feel... If somebody stands, don't feel like you have to stand. I mean, I want this to be a time for you to spend some time with the Lord. And this worship is just going to be provided as an opportunity uh, to confess to Him your need for Him and your love for Him. And so I'm going to pray and we're going to just spend a couple minutes in silence and then we'll sing. God, You know my 
sin. You know um, how I am such, um, so much like Barabbas in how I often want to punish myself. And, and God, I'm growing in my understanding of Your grace. So God, help me to continue to be grateful, to, to, to continue to surrender these things to You and to trust You with my sin, to give it to You and to, to recognize that You've not only cleansed it, but You've removed um, the shame. And God, that I can, I can walk in freedom because of what Jesus has done, not because of my own efforts, but because of Jesus. And so God, I, I pray that we would take an opportunity um, to confess, to, to rejoice, to, to fall on our face, to stand in praise, whatever God you lead us to. I pray that we give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen.